This week on the Backtable Podcast. It's a great time to be an innovator. And in medicine, I think our culture has finally accepted it's okay to be a doctor and to pursue active entrepreneurial ambitions. There's nothing wrong with that. And if anything, you're contributing, I think, materially to the benefit of patients that you would never even have remote exposure to if, if your idea actually works. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Show, where you will hear stories from physician entrepreneurs who are helping to drive healthcare forward through medtech innovation. Today, we've got another great episode with the inventor of the Sarnus Early Bird Monitoring System with uh, EP cardiologist, Dr. Mehdi Razavi. Welcome to the show, Mehdi. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Eric. Is that okay if I call you EP cardiologist? Absolutely. All right, fantastic. Well, Mehdi, I myself being an interventional cardiologist, and we do have a fair number of interventional cardiologists on the show. We've had Gary Ansel on the show, another founder of a, a med tech company and physician entrepreneur. This show, we like to bring on physician entrepreneurs who can help tell their they can tell their stories, which are oftentimes inspiring, but also help docs kind of overcome uh, any challenges that they might have. Uh, with their own ideas. And so feel free to tell us about it, A, the origin story, but also we just want to kind of hear like going from idea to execution, what that process was like. But first, tell us a little bit about your background um, and where you were in your career when the original idea came up. Yeah. So yeah, I was was finishing up my training at uh, Mayo Clinic and I was coming in Houston. I had just started in Houston and my practice was starting to get busier and at that point, we were still doing, you may remember, that was back in the days of giving Lovenox to everyone periprocedurally and trying to you know, transition them with, with Lovenox and things of that nature. And so a lot of these patients, we would have to give them because periprocedurally with left atrial ablations, the risk of stroke is really, really high. So we would aggressively anticoagulate them, you know, ACTs of above, above 300 routinely. And the incidence of hematomas was relatively high. Uh, Lovenox was a bad player, even when you did the adjusted dosage. And uh, so what happened is uh, I had a case where uh, post-procedurally, uh, about an hour later, they call me, the patient's uh, you know, having pain, they're hypotensive. And unfortunately, in reality of medicine these days, I'm in a car driving between hospitals at that point. And it just, you know, you get that feeling in your chest and you're like, oh boy, is there a way that I wish I could figure out right now if there's a bleed? And I remember at just at that moment, it came to me that if I, if that sheath could tell me what the impedance is, I bet you I could tell you if blood is in that space or if it's not blood or if it's some other reason. And that way I could be able to potentially uh, detect and alert myself in, in terms of, you know, hematoma forming. So that's kind of how it started as I was driving between hospitals. Oh gosh, I, I just cringe, you know, because I know that feeling, you know, and especially that call where you, you're about to go and literally be scrubbed in on another procedure and you, you got to make that decision. What do I do? Do I go back to check on this patient and then have to postpone or cancel my next procedure? And you're, I mean, it's, it's a really tricky position to be in, and, but it sounds like it was, uh, you know, in that pain point, you're experiencing that it sounds like a light bulb went off in terms of 
you know, thinking about the impedance. Do you have an engineering background? Is that why that sort of like came to you? No, actually, I don't. I was a bio major and, you know, philosophy minor. But I think the EP background did help me uh, a little bit here. Uh, you know, in, in EP, we really, really use impedances quite frequently. And we have a pretty good understanding of what kind of environments, microenvironments, and even, and, and even and, you know, kind of global in terms of what regions of, of the body do what kind of impedances. And so we knew that, you know, one of the features that we look at we can tell that we're in the middle of the cavity when our catheter impedance suddenly drops because obviously you're conducting a lot better in blood than when you're contacting tissue. And so that was probably the thing that I think kind of potentially helped me out. I, I wonder if I was an interventional cardiologist, if I would have come up with the idea. And that's why I, I actually think that I do EP and I'm actually directly not involved in some of these high-risk procedures that you guys do, but I came up with the idea I think the EP background definitely helped. Yeah, that's super. That's really interesting um, because it, it does help a lot. You know, now there's multiple specialties involved in endovascular care, and and the impact that this have. I mean, a groin hematoma is the worst. Whether even if it's small, it's just such a nuisance. It goes from nuisance to really to life threatening, right? And so, can you tell us next steps? Like, okay, you have this idea. You it came from you know having to deal with a complication. Where where did you take that idea from there? So I was fortunate enough that across the street, we have a really, really great engineering program in Rice University. And so I, I turned this idea into one of these capstone projects, which I encourage all of my colleagues to consider. These are projects that you get to work with either, you know, college seniors or, or um, graduate students in college, and you support a research project, you act as a mentor, and sometimes the ideas bear fruit and sometimes they don't. So this was one of the first ideas I had. I went and I, you know, I pitched it at one of these uh, for the undergrads. And it was actually not even a graduate program. It was the senior capstone program. And then a team formed and we tried to have a working prototype. I wouldn't say it was working, but by the end of the year, it was good enough that we actually entered. We created the startup right around that period of time. And at that time, it was just a project between me and a, and an undergrad in college. That's how it started. That's incredible. God, how satisfying for that senior. It was a, it was a senior undergrad. Yes, unbelievable. I mean, to yeah, unbelievable to go to to now a full fledged med tech company. What, had you done any sort of device design or entrepreneurial stuff before this? Yeah, I got. I did. I did do a project, and I. It was with one of the other companies. So I, I did a project with Medtronic, and that was the first time that I really came up with an idea, and then we implemented it. And the idea with regards to that was a means of optimizing cardiac resynchronization therapy, CRT, device timing. So basically, we used intraatrial conduction delays to program and optimize the settings on the device for biventricular pacemaker. And actually, Medtronic patented this, and um, it—they're using it in one of their algorithms. So that was my first, the first time that I saw an idea actually, and that was right at my transition between fellowship and starting my job. And it's really weird because until I was done as a fellow, I really did not have any large or huge, you know, contributions. I would say in terms of innovation or original research or anything like that. I was 
hardcore clinician wanted to do clinical medicine, but then I don't know, it just the switch happened. I found it very, very just invigorating and it just offered a whole level of spice and excitement to my day-to-day work. And I just, once you get that first endorphin surge, that first idea that works and you see it, you just, you just need more. You're totally right, man. It's, it's addictive. I mean, I, I, I was kind of in the same boat where I didn't really do contribute much in terms of research or invented a device or, or, or even medical education until we started back to about six years ago. And, you know, once you get that traction where somebody's like, Oh, this, this, this is helpful. Like this is a real contribution to your specialty. It is addict. It is great. And it's great to like have, you know, you want to do more. You're right. You like, you want to keep it going. You want to keep that feeling going. And so I, I, and that's part of the reason why we started this entrepreneurial innovation podcast is to tell those same stories because it is a common thread. So it sounds like you'd already gone through a patent process. How involved were you in that patent process? I was not very much kind of Medtronic really took the lead on that. And I'm, I'm grateful for that because I think at that point, if I had seen the, how the sausage is made in terms of patent searches and this and that, I probably would have uh, taken a couple of steps back, but I didn't. And so I went into my next project, which was Serranus, which was this idea. And um, that's when I really learned, okay, this is how you do it. You go to the USPTO website, you try to figure out how to navigate, you know, the, the maze of all the prior IP. You search and search, and then someone brings up, oh, have you seen this last patent and you look at it and you're like every time you're searching a patent you're praying that that idea has not been uh, is, is your idea is not really replicating someone else's but yeah it, it was a slog but it was really really fruitful at the end when you do get a patent from it it's it's an unbelievable feeling and it was really really worth it I, I think as physicians we want to impact our patients and obviously the most concrete way of doing it is when you do a procedure when you open a, you know, an occluded LAD or something like that. That's very, very concrete. That's, you know, you're making an impact on that one patient. But I, I really encourage entrepreneurship and innovation because then you really are impacting so many more individuals. Yes, you don't have that one-on-one contact. Yes, it doesn't feel, you know, it perhaps not as gratifying as when they, you know, bring you a, a gift and, and the follow-up visit. But to me, it feels just as impactful. And I, I, like you say, once you have an idea like this and you take it to, to fruition, you want to you wanna do more. Well said. And it sounds like the patent process. So how long did that patent process take? From the initial submission of our provisional to when we got our final office action for the first patent was probably, and you won't believe this, or you might, but probably on the order of about five to six years. It really was very long. Yeah. It really took a long time. Yep. That's incredible. Yeah. And like you had the patience. I mean, yeah. I mean, as long as there's nothing else like it still out there and you have the patience and you're pushing this forward, how, what kept you pushing forward through that whole process during that time, five, six years? Once I saw that this works, it was to me done. I was like, this idea works. And when you see that it works and you see the impedances drift as you're, you know, injecting, you're doing your studies, your preclinical studies and things of that nature. When you know the idea works, I don't know. I just got, I was like, I'm determined to make this concept 
clinically germane, clinically relevant. And that probably was the single motivating factor that pushed me on this. So so during that time, while you're waiting on the patent, you're doing, you have a working prototype, you're doing the animal studies, you're getting that you're collecting the data to show that it it works. Okay. Um, And that was all via what, uh, at Baylor? Yeah, that was at uh, that was at uh, Texas Heart Institute. Yep. So I'm, 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 okay. yeah, this was at Texas Heart Institute. Of course, yeah, my affiliation is also with Baylor. So both of these institutes work together, and you need to have buy-in honestly from your tech transfer office. I can't overemphasize the importance of having a friend uh, up in the tech transfer office. It really, really helps things out and it smoothens the process. We, these three institutions work together so that basically all I was doing is focusing on the technology itself. It's really, really important to have buy-in from your uh, institution. Yeah, so we've had docs on, on the show before to talk about that, the partnership with, insti- in, you know, when you're in an academic institution, how to navigate those things. It sounds like most people we have on the show get really good support. Although we've had docs, Believe it or not, like we we had Julio Palmas on this show, and he was talking about his support wasn't that great in the beginning, and where he was, and so it, it could it can be touch and go. But it seems like nowadays most institutions seeing the potential are you know put that extra effort in. But you, you then you got to figure out okay how do you how do you create a company out of this, right? That's exactly right, and. I created the company actually pretty early in the process. That was one thing that I was excited about too. I was like, I, w- I want to start a company. Let's see how this goes. And I did that process. And I would advise that you do that early because if anything, the company gives you structure. You're forced into having structure. You're, you're forced into tasks and you're forced into deciding who's going to do what. And that's my other big advice to my fellow cardiologists. Most of us are physicians. We're not engineers. We're not business people. And as smart as many of us are, and as confident as many of us are about our intelligence, I would definitely say that one of the important things was uh, has been realizing the limitations that you have. And so having a startup has really helped with me, at least the way and the way my thought process is. I always like to know, okay, who's doing what? What are the roles towards towards the goal? And the startup really just helped with that. So I started the company very early in the process. And you, and you were telling me this, the, how you guys chose the name Saranus from the Canary in the Coal Mine, but tell, tell, the, tell that story, how you just decided on a name, because naming is challenging as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Me and Alex Arevalos, uh, the co-founder, were sitting, I still remember, in, in Barnes & Nobles, back, back when Barnes & Nobles were more of a thing, unfortunately. Topic for another day. And we were thinking about ideas and uh, the canary, the whatever, the yellow canary, it's Serenus something. I forget what the species is, but the genus was Serenus. And so I said, okay, if that's, let's, we are a warning system. We are the early bird. So let's name ourselves something that, you know, dovetails with that. So I said, okay, let's just make it easy. All A's instead of different vowels. So S-A-R-A-N-A-S. And that's the name of the company. Yeah, makes it easy to spell too. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I like that. Uh, I was telling you, I was telling Medio before that I'm a zoology major in undergrad, so I, I like that touch. But uh, so you started a company, and so in those early days, like, how did you determine? I mean, you knew that 
there was a problem here to solve, right? It's it's growing hematomas. The there needs to be a system to detect whether or not there's going, especially in the setting of large board procedures, people on anticoagulation. There needs to be a way to detect if there's a hematoma forming. Did you do any research around product market fit? Did you interview a bunch of docs? Did you dive into the into the literature? How did you kind of determine that before you invested in starting a company around it? No, I definitely was talking at that point. Uh, Tavers were just beginning; they were just in their their infancy, and you know our center has and the folks around us uh, very very active with with Tavers. So we had a quite a high volume, relatively speaking, back in those days when the procedures were quite a bit more you know longer and more involved. So we had a good idea that this is a problem. We also were one of the first centers where we had we were using the the tandem heart and eventually the impellas. So we had an idea that large bore procedures can be associated with a, you know with an frankly unacceptable level of bleeding often at, at the access site. And so I gut wise I knew it was a problem. In the beginning, in the early days, it was mostly informally talking to my colleagues, and that's all it was. I would tell them that I I had this situation. I have an idea. Do they think that I'm crazy? Would it? Do they need this information? And technicalities aside, it was clearly most of the docs definitely were strongly in favor of it. But of course, they're your friends, they're your colleagues. So you always have to be, you know, you have to be cautious in terms of the the opinions that you get at that in those earlier stages. But that's yeah, that's what I based my certainty on was the fact that my colleagues were telling me, yeah, this is a real problem. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's true. Like sometimes you get the people who are just going to be nice, like, oh yeah, that sounds great. But you want that real honest person who's just bluntly like, that's not, it, it, but even when somebody says that's not a great idea or they shoot you down, you still have to take that with a grain of salt and, and you still have to, I think the key thing, and you kind of mentioned this, is just talk to as many people as you can about it. And they'll just stick to a few people because that could set, that could make you biased either way, right? If you only talk to a few people and two out of three are saying it's a horrible idea, then you might walk away with your head down and never, you know, never pursue it. But then, you know, you talk to three people and they're all like, oh yeah, that's amazing, but they're not giving you honest feedback. Then you might pursue something that's not like really worth the time or effort, you know? There is an element of risk one way or another, be it intellectual, be it time, be it financial that you're undertaking. And I think, you know, as physicians, many of us are perhaps a little bit more risk averse. And uh, I always say my backside is got a lot of calluses and it's very, very, uh, very, very tough. You, You need to have, you need to have a resilient backside. You need to accept the failures. And there were many, many failures in order to have the success. You have to be stubborn. Yeah, you gotta fail forward is what they say, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, I do wanna talk about some of those failures and challenges, but first, before we do that, can you walk us through actually how the device works? Mm-hmm, certainly. The device essentially is our standard sheath, vascular axis sheath that we all have. On the outer surface of it, there's four ring electrodes. And those ring electrodes, once you place the device in, it's, it's connected to its own dongle on the, on the flush port. And that unit has its own internal, the whole sheath is self-working self system. It, once you activate it, you insert the sheath, you press the button on, the, on that flush port, we call it the dongle, 
it turns on the device and everything else is with the device. It starts emitting an electrical signal continuously during the course of the procedure. It's subphysiologic, so it's not stimulating tissue. It's not capturing muscle, doing anything like that. And you're continuously then monitoring the impedance, the electrical resistance of, of that area. Now, it turns out that of all the tissues in our body, blood has the lowest level of resistance to electrical conduction. The resistance, for example, if I touch my ablation catheter to the tip or the body of the left atrial wall, my impedance will suddenly go up. The same thing happens if I go inside the veins, pulmonary veins, because now you're having, you're closer, you're proximate to the lung tissue, which has the highest resistance, of course, of all. And so as this, as this baseline resistance is being you know, defined for every individual patient, it's also looking at deviations from that resistance. And as it turns out, as fresh blood is inserted into any kind of a space, a biological space, that resistance starts dropping because you have fresh blood exposure. And not only does it indicate that there is an introduction, a drop in impedance, there's an in, uh, introduction of blood, it actually correlates well. The extent of drop in impedance actually correlates quite well with the volume of blood. And so you can start by tracking the impedance. And as you're tracking the impedance and the drop in impedance, you then have your own formula to correlate that with the volume of blood. And so the device will tell you, okay, we have a drop in impedance. And then it will take you through three stages of impedance drops, correlating with different levels of bleeding and volumes of bleeding. And most of the times we tell the docs, certainly on the first light, if it goes off, don't do anything, just keep it in mind. But then as the second light goes off, I'm still, you know, I think it's it's prudent to be on alert, but not to, to panic. I wouldn't alter the course of the case. But once a third light comes, then you really may want to consider if, if there's a drop in blood pressure or you may want to adjust your, you know, your, your, your ACT or your heparin boluses or anticoagulation of choice. And the beauty of it is that you know, you, we keep it post-procedure. So you, you can leave the sheath in. And typically the way we work it is it's, it becomes the venous sheath. We don't use it as the arterial sheath. We put a venous sheath. If you have a temp wire, you use the same venous sheath. It's a fully, fully functional sheath. And then if the impedance is stable, it is incredibly sensitive. If the impedance levels are not deviating, you are virtually assured that there is no bleeding. So if you do have hypotension and the device doesn't trigger, you're fairly confident to look for other reasons. And if the device is triggered, then you know that there's potentially a real problem. Got it. And so because the sheath sits in the venous, in like the common femoral vein adjacent to the artery, That's right. right. That okay. is exactly right. Correct. And when somebody, like I, because I'm always thinking about, because it's rare that, I mean, IRs might help get access for like a large bore procedure sometimes. But in terms of large bore arterial procedures, we don't do many unless, I mean, you know, maybe some people are helping out with uh, your extent graphs and whatnot. But I'm just thinking about post-procedure, having it in there, especially if somebody's anticoagulated, especially if they have a huge groin, right, where you can't really monitor them visibly very well and they're, they're pretty sedated or maybe they were, it was a, an anesthesia procedure where they can't really tell you if they're having any pain. Those kinds of cases where I, you know, where I most often am seeing like actual groin hematomas, 
and then a failed closure device. Is, does it get, is it affected at all by placement of a closure device? No, I mean the the closure device is would be placed. No, it is not. It's really interrogating right, adjacent, the deep right. tissues. Yeah, that's right. And it's actually the impedance area. It's the sheath is two or three centimeters longer than our typical sheath that your short sheath that we're used to. And the reason is we want to interrogate the deeper tissues. We're not really interested in an anterior, you know, hematoma. That is, we're we're interested in picking out what you know what causes the retroperitoneums. That's correct. Yeah, exactly. You know, always a problem with those larger, larger patients. Where again, you you don't even you don't even get the warning signs of a retroperitoneal bleed until their blood until it's too late, right? Their blood pressure has already dropped, uh, and then it's a real emergency. So. Who used it in the first patients? Did you get to use it in the first patients, or where were you trialing that at? So we have been using it probably, I, you know, I can, Mike McKinnon, the CEO, now has a much better handle on, on things. Um, but I would say we're probably somewhere close to over over 100 hospitals, I would think. But again, don't quote me on this. And it's it's being used. I myself have not used it, and I'll explain in a couple of seconds why. Two reasons. First of all, I, I'm cautious of sometimes the optics of things. And I just feel that right now, the procedures that I do are mostly venous, right, with AFibs and, and what we do clinically. But my colleagues have been using it, and my EP colleagues have definitely uh, used it. And the first place that we actually tried it, we did do it as an inter- well, our interventional cardiologist at St. Luke's did it along with Philippe Genero. The first one that was done was our current CMO, Philippe Genero, and he did it um, in New Jersey. So yeah, the key is to have a damn good CMO, and we really have an awesome CMO. He has been incredible. So yeah, I'm very lucky that way. Yeah, so how did you build out that team? Um, you know, because you, you say you started the business, but wh- what were your first hires, and then how did it kind of unfold from there? Yeah, our first hire was uh, was this was the CEO, and it was it was touch and go. It was everyone's first time doing this, and uh, you know you'll learn that the less experience you have in the beginning, the more experienced folks may be a little bit gun shy of of working with you. You kind of have to establish at times your bona fides, both in terms of getting the best talent to work with you. I think. And also raising funds, which is very, very critical. So I started the team with the CEO. The CEO, we all were working with basically sweat equity. And um, it was hard. But after about a year and a half, we had our first series of, you know, angel uh, investors. And then we did a series A. And after that, we transitioned CEOs. I've, I've learned that that's kind of a normal process as, as these startups evolve. You have the CEOs who's come in at the early, earliest stages, and then you have certain skill sets required at that period. And then as the process matures, everyone has the understanding, now you need a second set of skill sets. And so the team built from that nucleus of the CEO, the tech, and also legal. <laughs> Believe it or not, that's one of the first things that you need to figure out who is doing your, your, your legal work, legal and, and regulatory. And once we had that, we started working towards FDA, and we created a board, mostly with myself, the co-founder, investors, and we had you know a couple of observers on the board, and it just grew from there. Um, once we got the FDA clearance, that really was a, 
inflection point. Uh, then the quality of <laughs> hiring was easier, raising money was a lot easier. And at that point, then we transitioned CEOs again, and, and now we have uh, Mike McKinnon. Yeah. Okay. So Mike is your third CEO in the yeah. along the roadmap? That's right. Got it. And was it difficult to get FDA approved? It was not. We did the entire thing was uh, done with a 510K de novo. It was done all with uh, preclinical animal work. We did not have wow. to do any clinical work with that. Correct. Yeah, that's amazing. Probably because it's not a treatment, right? It's a detection that's device. Correct. I would imagine that's that'd be right. easier. It's a yeah. class two device. Got it. In other words, if it stops working, you still have a functional, totally functional sheath. If everything sheath, else about yeah. it completely fails. Yeah, I guess it would just be like if there was missignaling or something like that. I mean, is is that a problem? Like, were you did you ever have that kind of glitch where missignaling? Not not clinically. The biggest concern I had was that the impedance monitoring can the electrical output can potentially stimulate the you know the femoral nerve or the femoral vein or something of that nature. Uh, that was my biggest concern, and so we had to down titrate the energy. But right now, the energies that we use are an order of magnitude lower than even the lowest, most sensitive pacing thresholds or capture thresholds that you have. Okay. Any any other challenges along the way, like any big setbacks that you think of, like uh, make you laugh <laughs> now that they're over? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, you know, you have, you have your setbacks. I think um, one of the things that there, there was a, there was a time um, that Early on, as we were raising funds, that honestly, it, it was it was not easy. It was definitely difficult when everyone was new. And I did think, is this ever going to happen? But you just persist, and it just, it does. If you persist, it's going to happen. I really believe that. Is it, Was there any individual or mentor or somebody who like was a significant advocate or supporter uh, along the way? I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge uh, Jack Gill. Jack Gill is a legend in the in the medical innovation entrepreneurial space. He's he's now he's now retired from, you know, day to day activity and investment. But early on he was the first one who who bought the idea, who supported it. And he has a relatively, you know, extensive network and here in Houston and he really, really made a lot of introductions for us, taught me how to do this, gave me all that you know, the advice that you need to be able to make your bona fides. And I just, I will never be able to thank him enough for all the support that he showed me. Yeah, Jack Gill is the man. Well, that sounds like a great guest for this show too. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure he's got yeah. some stories to tell. You're heavily involved as a founder and, and you know, but you're also a busy, probably still a full, full-time clinical EP doc, right? That's right. You're still full-time? Yes. Yeah. So how do you balance that? How do you balance the it's not even a side gig anymore. I mean, you're, you, it's a full-fledged med tech company. How do you balance working on that with your full-time clinical work? My day-to-day with the company on the business side is not as active. And I simply, that's, you know, that's not something that has been something that I'm either really that, I don't want to say interested, but it's something that's not my sweet spot, if you will. And so I have not been as, you know, day-to-day Involvement is more limited. You, you're exactly right. You have to pick your your battles. Your bandwidth is limited, and there's only so much that you can do. And I'll just, as a, on a personal note, I'm like an older father. So, you know, the family, a new kid comes, and and just the, all these different things are happening. You you learn that you have to manage um, manage your time. So, 
I'm just grateful that we have an incredible CEO who is who's running this show um, fantastically and and is allowing me to have the breathing room to do my clinical work and still spend time with the family and and do all those things. So it's really important to find a team. And also, I find it really, really critical to understand that there are certain things that we are just, other people know stuff about other things more than we do. And again, this is coming back to what I said earlier in, in the show. I think as physicians, our personalities don't lend themselves to to giving up control or giving up the sense that, you know, I know what's going on here. I'm I'm potentially the smartest person, one of the smarter people in the room. And we have to, you know, we have to understand that sometimes you just have to back off and, and respect the fact that you don't know what you yeah. don't know. Good advice, solid advice. I think that's the problem with, you know, we do, we keep, we trip over our own egos, right? I mean, we're, we went through all this training, we have a clinical experience. We're used to being the the smartest person in the room and, you know, we think we are, in, you know, in our procedure rooms and then we... uh we're used to giving orders and, and whatnot, and it, it's hard to listen sometimes when you're in that you know in the room with the business types because they do they have the experience there, right? And it's okay to give your opinion, but I think I, I what I see it go wrong with physicians and and startups is we just can't get past our own ego where we got to be the you know the final say, and uh, sometimes you just kind of let people who know what they're doing. And you're right. The other part, piece of it is we are risk averse and so we're afraid of failure. And, and so that, that gets in our way as well. Right. So, well, all, all good stuff. And, uh, you know, any more innovations in the pipeline, Mehdi, uh, for Serranus? There's been thought about putting this system on a wire. There's been thought about which that way, instead of having the sheath, you can just retain a wire. That way, potentially, you could leave the monitoring for a longer period of time. So those kinds of technical innovations, right? We're also in the midst of a clinical trial to demonstrate the efficacy of the procedure. Uh, we're collecting data. There are centers that have documented drops and in their uh, incidents of their bleeds, and we're we're trying to get that word out. So it's uh, it's very very exciting times for us, and uh, it's it's a great time to to be an innovator. and And I'll say one other thing. In medicine, I think our culture has finally accepted it's okay to be a doctor and to pursue active entrepreneurial ambitions. There's nothing wrong with that. And if anything, you're contributing, I think, materially to the benefit of patients that you would never even have remote exposure to if, if your idea actually works. So that's, that's just an additional thought yeah. that I would like to put out there. No, I totally agree. I think that's solid advice to finish up with because, I mean, look at you. You you took a problem that we uh, that's very common in medicine with groin hematomas, and you found a solution for it, and it's going to have positive impact on so many patients and physicians, right? The amount of stress that we deal with with groin hematomas. And nursing staff. Let's not forget. And nursing they, staff. Oh, they yeah. They love the system. They love the system. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, and techs, too. I mean, they're the ones that have yes. to, you know, hold the pressure when that's after right. a procedure and you know to be able to to wa you know have this device that helps determine whether or not there's a problem i think uh, the whole team is going to be happy so uh, well thank you so much Mehdi, for coming on the show and telling us the origin story of, of serranus and uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with you whether it be for a an innovation question or 
or you know about uh, the device itself, how can how's it, what's the best way to reach you on LinkedIn or LinkedIn is absolutely the best way. It's Medi Razavi, cardiologist in Houston, Texas. And please, I have a, a very active LinkedIn page and um, would entertain any questions or any any ideas, uh, thoughts for collaboration. If, if there's centers that want to talk about this technology, happy to engage with them. Perfect. Thank you so much, Medi. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Backtable Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable Innovation is produced and hosted by Brian Hartley, Aaron Fritz, Diana Velasquez-Pimentel, and Eric Amaker. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Willie Kennebrew. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.